So this morning we're thinking about Operation World. You see, this verse from John 17 has meant a lot to me, as you can imagine, as a family. Jesus is sending us out to the other side of the world, to Australia. John chapter 17, verse 18 has been very special. Now some people, some church ministers think that it's actually a very hard job trying to tell Sydney siders about heaven uh, because most of them think they live there already. I'm not so sure. See, if you study the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis, especially Genesis 1 to 11, you quickly realise that there in those chapters, moving west is symbolic of moving towards God, but actually moving east is to be cast out from his presence to be shut out from him. And if you know anything about geography from school, you don't get that much further east than Australia. And when you come to Australia, you don't get that much further east than Sydney. Now, apologies to any Australians. I'm not trying to say it's a godless place completely. I suppose I'm just getting my retaliation in early because, as has been indicated already, my my mother was born in Yorkshire, home of Geoffrey Boycott, And my father was born and comes from Cape Town. He used to play the Villagers Rugby Club. And what I've learned already is, as half English, half South African, I'm going to get a lot of stick in in Australia, as it's happened already. But is that what it's all about? John 17, verse 18. Jesus says to the Father, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Going out to the four corners of the earth, crossing the seven seas. Well, yes and no. See, when John writes his Gospel and he uses this word world, he doesn't use it in quite the way we tend to use it. It has certain connotations. The word world is used to sum up all the values and the ideas of all of society and human beings living together. And the point is that this world, the kind of summation of all our values and ideals, the sum of all of us, is in rebellion against God. We can't understand John's Gospel until we grasp that. That's what it's all about. The world here is not so much a geographical place. It stands for all humanity and all humanities with our hearts naturally orientated away from God. What the Bible calls sinners. And so when we come to the the most famous verse in the Bible, probably the most famous, John 3, verse 16, that's what we need to understand. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. What we're to understand and what we're to marvel at, of course, is the great extent of God's love, that he should love the world. But we're not primarily to marvel at that he could love all of the world, marvellous though that is, not because the world is so big, but that the world is so bad. That's the point. It's why we should wonder that God should love not so much all of us, though he does, but that he should love us at all, that we don't deserve it. Because the world in this sense is a hostile place to God. Jesus tells us in John 17 that he and his followers should expect that. But the good news is that there is a radical rescue mission in place. 
Precisely because God loves us so much, he wants to save us. It's what this verse, John 17 verse 18, teaches us. That God sent his own son into the world to save us. That is what the ministry, the life and especially the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. That although we are bad in the sense that we are under God's judgment because we've rebelled against him, Jesus has come to save us. That's what his death on the cross was all about. That we might know and experience God's love. It is a wonderful rescue mission that we all need. But the amazing thing of this verse, John 17 verse 18, is that Jesus then goes on to say that in a similar way to the way he was sent out, his followers are also sent out into the world. Now clearly our mission is not exactly the same as Jesus, it couldn't be. He came to save the world. Our mission is to spread the good news of Christ into the world, to tell the gospel the good news. But we are sent out in a similar way and therefore Operation World, the the mission that Jesus sent us out into, is not about primarily going all the way to Australia. It could be about going next door, out into Edinburgh, where we live and work. And when I was growing up, this section of John 17 was summed up by a little phrase. I was told uh, as as a boy... Christians, according to what Jesus teaches here, are called to be in the world, but not of it. I still, it's very simple, still find that a very simple and helpful way to understand the mission of Jesus. Christians, followers of Jesus, are called to be in the world, but not of it. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We're sent into the world, but our values are different from the world. Now, apologies, it's just the way my brain works. Coming from a scientific background, I I tend to, to be able to understand what something is like. I need to understand all the things that it isn't, logically, so I can see clearly what it is. And although it, it may not make a lot of sense to start with, I hope it will make sense as we work through, that logically there could be four possible options in our behaviour. Ideally, Jesus says we're to be in the world, but not of it. But there are three other possibilities. They must be that it's possible to be in the world, but of it, in the world and of the world's values, or withdrawing from the world, coming out of the world, and not of its values, or finally, out of the world and of the world. And hopefully on the screen now, you've got those four options. It's okay, it might, bear with me, you might be all this in and out, in and out, might sound a bit like the okie-cokie, but trust me, I hope as we work through, it'll make sense and we'll be able to understand more clearly what Jesus really wants of us, what this great mission is all about. See, we're called as followers of Jesus. If this morning you claim to be a follower of Jesus, he calls you to be in the world, but not of it. And if we look at verses 16 and 18, that is the only option. I don't see anything else. Verse 16, they, the disciples, are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Very clear, very clear. Followers of Jesus are not of this world. We have been set apart, that's what the word saint means. Christians have been set apart by God to live different lives 
to have different values from the rest of the world. But, and it's a big but, verse 18, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We're not of this world, but we are sent into it. And if you think about it, that inevitably must lead to attention, shouldn't it? It's, it's, not a, it's not an easy place to stay in that position. We're being pulled apart. Jesus spells out that tension in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Rather like... Two magnets, if you've got two magnets and you try to put the two north poles together or the two south poles together, there's a, they're bound to push each other apart. And so any Christian who is sent out into the world by Jesus but is trying to live according to his values is going to feel sort of repulsed by that. There's a tension there. It's hard work. It's difficult. We're sent into the world to immerse ourselves in the culture in the society in which we're placed, but that doesn't mean we take on the surrounding values. Quite the opposite. Jesus expects his followers to live in a way, a different way that will draw attract, uh, attract attention to themselves, even more than that, hatred. Now down south in the Christian press, uh, this past year we've been reading a lot about the Christian unions in this land, in the United Kingdom, and some of the pressure that Exeter and Birmingham and, of course, Edinburgh University CU has come across. Now, I'm sure that the members of the CU of the Edinburgh University are not perfect, but as you read in the press, you generally get the impression they're not trying to stir up trouble. You've been through this. Simply putting on the pure course, a course that teaches right relationships, how God wants us to behave, has stirred up trouble, has attracted hatred from the world and we should expect that in the world but not of it and it produces attention we want to be obedient to God but that's going to mean going out into the world and as it were rolling up our sleeves and getting our feet dirty but that's hard because how do you do that without compromising all the beliefs and values and the behaviour that we're called to it's not an easy place that tension between withdrawal from the world or compromising to the world's values. See, moving on, one, because of that tension, one temptation is to be pulled towards the values of the world. To be in the world, as Jesus sends us out, but actually to be of the world, to take on all those, those values. See, most of us want a quiet life, and I say that because I know I do. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to be a, a social chameleon that blends in with people around me. We don't want to face the hatred of others, so we go into the world, but we come just like them. Yet, according to Jesus, that is simply not an option left to followers of Jesus. Again, we have to set verse 18 in context. Look once more at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, by the truth. Your word is truth. Followers of Jesus are to be different from the world. God's word, the Bible, is to transform, to change our values so that we become increasingly like Jesus. It's interesting, in the 1990s, the Church of England 
was wrestling with the issue of cohabitation and it brought out a report. This was the considered opinion of the Church of England on this issue of cohabitation and it was called Something to Celebrate. And yet Sarah Maitland, a a journalist writing in the Guardian newspaper, wrote this stinging criticism of the report. Listen to this. She wrote, Instead of telling people that they are not sinners, the church should be telling us that we are all sinners. Isn't that sad that, that it takes a journalist writing in a national newspaper to tell the church how she should be? And yet it's true. She's dead right. When, when truths from the Bible become increasingly unpopular in our society, there is a huge temptation. And let's be honest, let's not pretend. There is a huge temptation to, to water down what we believe, to change what we stand for so that we fit in and we don't stand out. But in a world of moral relatives, we are given an absolute morality. Now that doesn't mean that it's simple or simplistic. Certainly we need to to think through modern dilemmas from the Bible to, to be sensitive and careful in the way we respond. But we know where to look for the answers. Jesus speaks about his heavenly Father and he declares, your word is truth. It's not about truth. Jesus doesn't say, you know, your word, Father, it's a good discussion starter, a good place to start. It is truth. Once we let go of that, we quickly become in the world and of the world, sharing its values. We compromise. And it doesn't stop there. Because if you look at the sweep of church history, when the church starts to compromise like that, It doesn't actually stay like that for long. It can't. Very soon, a a shift starts to happen. In reality, another pull starts to exert itself. Because think about it. If you've got uh, non-Christians and Christians living in a city side by side, sharing their lives together, if their values and their behaviour are exactly the same, it's not going to take long for someone to start thinking, well, what is the point of all this Christianity stuff? What, what's the point of, of following the Lord if actually it doesn't make any difference? And at that point, another tension kicks in, like an elastic band or a spring pulling us another direction. Because if we're to continue, if the church is going to continue to exist, but our values are exactly the same as the world, we've got to be different in another way, and there is only other one, one other way to go. We've got to withdraw from the world, go out of the world, because in the world and of it, eventually collapses into out of the world and of it. We withdraw in that way. As I said, our church building in Cheltenham was refurbished about four years ago. And one of the issues we had to face, and still do regularly, is that it's a grade two star listed building, which creates all sorts of headaches. And as part of the process, I had to wade through all the objections from the Victorian Society of why we wanted to remove our pews. And the Victorian Society claimed, and I quote from one letter, that removing our pews would reduce the transcendence of our building. In other words, they expect a church to look out of date. That's what churches do. That's the whole point. The expectation is 
church is irrelevant. That's what they're saying. Now, I'm a fan of pews. All my life I've sat on pews practically. But the ones at Cambrai are the most uncomfortable I've ever, ever come across. Sitting on them does transport you to another place, but it's not heaven. (laughs) You see, in the world and of the world, you see how it actually collapses into being like the world and sharing all its values, so we have to withdraw. Now, I don't know what it is, whatever thing you want to return to, so you think that will make the church different, whether it's, I don't know, whatever period of history. Celtic spirituality. Maybe getting back to the Puritans. Or in this church, Christopher Anderson, when it was founded, or Joseph Kemp, or whoever. Godly men that we thank God for. But Jesus doesn't say here, as the Father sent me, so I send you back in time. He says, I send you out into the world now, as it is. Sharing the gospel, bringing the good news. So we need to be relevant, but biblical. Not compromising. Resisting that temptation. Is that not the strap line for Charlotte Chapel? Conspicuous for Christ. Not wanting to withdraw, but remaining faithful to the gospel, to what the Lord has taught us. But we can't stop there. See, compromise may be the danger that many of us have been warned from childhood, But it's only one danger, it's only one side. And I want to make clear this morning that the other side is just as dangerous. Just as dangerous. We want to remain true to God's word and therefore the other temptation is to flee the enmity of the world. To run away, to have nothing to do with it. To be out of this world but not of it. And I have to confess, in the churches I grew up as a boy, this was probably the most likely thing to happen. But rather like the servant who hid his talent, do not expect Jesus to be pleased with you if you adopt that approach. Now those who appeal to the Apostle Paul's command in 2 Corinthians to come out of them in 2 Corinthians 6, I think are gravely mistaken. Because the same Apostle Paul was crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 5, when he says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Yet isn't that precisely what many Christians try to do? Leave this world. Even though, as we've just read, this is specifically forbidden. In John 17, Jesus says yet again, I'm going to keep saying it until we get the point, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And he continues, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now notice that, for Jesus, as for his disciples, the path of sanctification involved embracing the world, going out into the world, not withdrawing from it. Remember, this was the Jesus who so immersed himself in first century culture that his critics called him a glutton and a drunk. Now, that wasn't true, it was just slander. But my point is, you don't get a reputation like that from running away from society, from hiding. 
No, the way of sanctification, of growing in holiness, Jesus says, is actually going out into the world, not withdrawing from it. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. Surely it should be the other way around. But if we think we're making ourselves more holy, more like Jesus, by withdrawing from the world, he says we are sadly mistaken. I was talking to a lady at our church recently who who summed up this issue really well. See, this is some years ago. She's uh, happily married now. But at the time, uh, she was uh, about 20 years ago, I think, was a single mum and uh, she'd just become a Christian. And so, so hungry was she for fellowship and teaching that she'd go along to church morning and evening and her poor kids should be dragged along to the evening service where there was no junior church, nothing for them to go to. So they just had to sit there and draw and read books or whatever during the service. But after she'd been tending for a while, one of the elders came up and sort of peered over her shoulder after one of the services at the children and said, um, uh, are those secular books? Now, she didn't have a clue what he was talking about and the answer she gave, I think, was fantastic. With hindsight, I think she would have said it anyway, but she just looked up at him and said, no, Enid Blyton. (laughs) So whatever it is, literature, Harry Potter even, films, music, Jesus doesn't call us to withdraw from the world, the festival going on in Edinburgh, doesn't call us to withdraw. He calls us to engage, but with godly discernment. Now, that is far harder. So much easier, isn't it, to either engage and compromise or engage, or rather fail to engage, just withdraw. Jesus calls us to neither. As I said, uh, we drove up last weekend and stopped off at Keswick in the way and it was great to to join in the Christian convention there at Keswick. Steve Brady is one of the the speakers this year and he gave a a fantastic illustration of, of this point. If you go to the Lake District, Helvellyn is a, is a famous peak there and apparently there's a, the ridge, Striding Edge. Those who do a lot of climbing will know all about Striding Edge. Very, very steep path with a sheer drop on either side. And Steve Beatty tells the story. Apparently it was um, about 100 years ago or so, some idiot decided he thought it would be clever to try and ride his horse along the ridge. And he fell off and died. And Steve Brady asked the question, he said, and of course, we all know, you know, which side did he fall off? And the Keswick Convention pauses and you can sort of see everybody thinking, oh yeah, you know, striding edge, you know, was it, was it that way, was it that? And Steve Brady gives the answer, which side did he fall off? Who cares? That's the answer. There's no use when he's dead at the bottom of the one side saying, well, you know, at least he didn't compromise. Now, either way, the point is you stay on the horse. You stay on with Christ's mission of going out into the world with the good news and you don't fall off either side. Because, you see, just as we saw beforehand, the drift doesn't stop there. Sometimes we think we're preserving our faith by withdrawing from the world into our holy huddles, but the opposite is happening. Again, if you study church history... It shows time and time again that when the church tries to withdraw from society, for a while things go okay, but very, very soon, actually, without realising it, they take on the values of the world anyway. As Moses found in the Old Testament, you can take the people out of Egypt, you can't take Egypt out of the people. 
And ironically, we need that interaction with the world. It's as we study the scriptures and we try to apply it to the world in which we live, that we can start to see if the church, if we in our lives are going off track or not. After all, ask any sailor. Out at sea, a sailor, when they're navigating, they need various things to know the way. Of course, they need the map and the compass, but they also look for fixed points. Because as the sea is raging, you've got the information of where you should be going, but the fixed points can tell you whether you're heading in the right direction or not. So there's a church of people, Charlotte Chapel, whoever, in their boat, happily trying to get on together. But how do they know if the boat is heading in the right direction? How do they know if they're, what direction they're heading in in response to the direction of the world at all? Now, if you can't plot your course respected to the world's direction as well as the word, you're inevitably going to get lost. You need to put the two together to, to wrestle with those issues to see what God is saying to us through his word. And you can't do that in isolation. Because if you get there, then the evil one has got us just where he wants us. Same destination as before. Eventually, if we go that route of withdrawal, we become out of touch with society, but also compromised, just like the world. Something I discovered recently, I didn't know this, but as we moved to Sydney at the end of the year, Sydney, Australia is now the world headquarters of the exclusive brethren. Didn't know that. And the tale of the closed brethren is a salutary lesson to learn. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have a lot to thank God for the brethren movement, particularly in this country. In fact, it's worth reflecting upon how how such a relatively tiny denomination has had such a powerful and, and wide impact on the gospel all over the world. But I do think the closed branch or the exclusive brethren those who became increasingly isolated, particularly the, the Taylorite dynasty of John Taylor and his family, it just imploded. And if you know anything of the scandals that associated, it became obvious that as they withdrew, they simply took on the values of the world. Just where the evil one wants the church, irrelevant and then compromised. And I've been thinking a lot about this personally in my, the Scripture Union notes that I read for my personal devotions. I've been working through 2 Timothy. And as it happens as a church, in the evenings we were studying one of the last letters that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 has famous words about guarding the gospel. Keep the sound teaching. Guarding the good deposit. Familiar territory for folk like us. But let's be honest for those who want to withdraw from the world. It's a picture, isn't it, of an armed guard protecting the treasure. That's what we want and we expect. But the problem is that that image of protecting treasure so, so dominates, our, dominates our thinking when we, we think about that, that we forget to go on to see how Paul explains we're supposed to guard the Gospel. So, for example, just, I don't know, example, maybe... We write out a statement of faith. We write down all on a bit of paper the things we say we believe. And we lock it away in a safe. We stand guard and, you know, you want to come to this bit of paper, you've got to come through me. Once a year, maybe we get the paper out, we check, phew, it's not changed, put it back again. Everything's fine. As long as what we say we believe hasn't changed, 
Everything is fine, we think. Is that Operation World, the mission Jesus has given us? See, I was struck, as you read 2 Timothy, how 2 Timothy chapter 2 begins. This is how, Paul explains, we're to guard the gospel, to keep it safe. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust a reliable man who will also be qualified to teach others. How do we guard the gospel? How do we keep the good news of Jesus safe? By passing it on. That's the way. See, what are we doing with it? The gospel is glorious. If you've you've met Christ, you know the joy and how wonderful it is. What are you doing with that gospel that God has entrusted to you? It doesn't matter how sound we are, how long we've been members of the chapel. If we're not living the gospel and telling others about Jesus Christ, we're not guarding the gospel. That's what Paul says. As I think about that, I'm reminded of the the parable of the talents that Jesus told. And some of us, let's be honest, and I, I think of myself most of all, some of us are just like that servant with the good news of Jesus, like a bank. You know, pristine, hermetically sealed. Nothing gets in. The gospel is kept there safely behind bars. But as the master said in the parable, you wicked, lazy servant, at least banks give interest. You know, it's hard getting money out of the Royal Bank of Scotland, but at least they give interest. Where's the interest? If we're guarding the gospel, where's the interest? Now, of course, that doesn't mean that what we believe is unimportant. Actually, quite the opposite. If the way we guard the good news about Jesus is explaining it to others and passing on the good news, we can be really careful that we explain it well. So, for example, the, uh, the current debate in this country, in the United Kingdom, about the atonement, about what the death of Jesus actually achieved, that's an important thing we need to think about. But we don't guard the gospel on a piece of paper. We keep it safe by passing it on. So actually, it really only comes down to a choice of two things. I might have started by saying there is four options, but I hope we can now see, really, there are only, for followers of Jesus, for people who claim they're Christians, there are only two options. In the world, but not of it, following Christ's command, Operation World, or actually withdrawing from the world and yet still taking on its values anyway. There is no third option. This is the mission that Jesus Christ gives to us all now. If you want to be my disciple, then you've got to get out there into the world, in the workplace, wherever, at home, at college, into society, but not taking on its values, sharing the good news of Christ. This building here, wonderful building that we thank God for, it's not a fortress to keep us safe in here and them out there. It's more like a hospital. And yeah, sure, some people do actually make it to A&E on their own. Lots of people need an ambulance, don't they? Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. If we've really experienced the love of Christ, the gospel, that he has saved us, that once we were under God's judgment, but now he's forgiven us and we've received his spirit, isn't that wonderful? Surely we want to pass it on, to share it with others. 
again in my Scripture Union notes a few weeks ago, I came across a great quote from Graham Cray. He writes this, Our lives show what we have chosen to believe, even if that contradicts what we claim to believe. It's worth thinking about. Our lives show what we have chosen to believe, even if that contradicts what we claim to believe. Now, I've nearly finished. But I just want to finish by thinking about what it means to us. What about you? What does this verse, John 17 verse 18, mean to you? Well, maybe some of you are not a Christian this morning. You don't really know what I'm going on about. You've decided, as yet, you don't want to trust Jesus. And if that's you, my guess is actually you've not really been following me because you're probably stuck with what I said right at the beginning. You're probably still thinking, but oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not that bad. That bit the guy said right at the beginning about that God loves us. Well, of course he loves me. I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice person. But I didn't say that. I didn't say God loves you because you're nice. He, I said God loves you despite who you are. And that actually, until you turn to Christ, you're under his judgment. And that is a serious position to be in. And therefore, either what I'm talking about is complete nonsense, so you should reject it and you shouldn't even be here, or it is the most important thing that you've ever, ever heard. So surely it deserves looking into, investigating. Now, I happen to know that this church runs a course called Christianity Explored. We have an opportunity to ask questions and investigate. And and I'd really urge you, if that's you and you're not yet a Christian, to to not leave it. Don't delay. Investigate it. Talk to me or Peter or any members of staff. Maybe even today. Accept Christ. Believe in him. But if you are a Christian, let me put it this way as we apply it. Do you feel that tension? So I've been talking about that tension that pulls us either to compromise or to withdraw. Do you feel it every day, certainly at least every week? Are you wrestling with things and thinking, well, you know, should I do that? I I want to be involved, but I'm really worried about compromise. And, you know, should I do... Do you feel that tension? Or actually, you, you just don't, you know, just don't get it. You don't know what I'm talking about. Because if that's you, if that's not even on your horizon, if you don't feel that tension at all, then it must mean one of two things. It must mean that either you claim you're a Christian, but your life is so like the values of the world that no one sees any difference at all. So there is no tension. Or it means you're so withdrawn from the world that nobody can, they need binoculars just to, to see you at all. But it's hard, you say. This is tough, living with this tension. And it is. Sure, if you go out to Nidri, see the work doing there, it's tough. Getting into the community, sharing Christ's love. Jesus didn't say it would be easy. But let me finish with some wonderful news. Fantastic news. If you take up this challenge of Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus prays for you. Listen to this, verse 15. 
My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Isn't that wonderful? That's the words that Jesus prayed for the original disciples, James, Peter, John and so forth. But there's more. Verse 20 continues. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Isn't that amazing? If you this morning, if you have believed in the same gospel, the same good news about Jesus that the original disciples did, then those words are Jesus' prayer for you, personally. Isn't that great? Jesus sends us out and it will be tough, but this is what he prays for us. Now, I can't, I'm here in Edinburgh. can't finish without quoting a Scotsman. So here's Robert Murray McShane. Listen to this. As you hear this quote, this is a man who, according to verse 13, knows the full measure of joy of Christ. The full measure of Christ's joy. And so he writes, If I could hear Christ praying in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that wonderful to know? Whenever I find the struggle is too hard, the battle too fierce, and I'm being worn down, whenever I'm tempted to give in either way, to withdraw or to compromise, I look up and I see him there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that he's praying for me. And I know that he gave his life for me, that I could be set free and experience full salvation in him. And he's praying for me to hang on in there, to keep on struggling. And he prays for my protection. And those in Nidri know, he doesn't promise to pray for the protection of your possessions, but he promises to pray for the protection of you from the evil one. And I know I'm not always going to get it right. In fact, I know I often get it wrong and I mess up. But I know even then there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. But while I keep on struggling, while I'm feeling that tension, it means I must be somewhere in the middle. And praise God for that. In the world, but not of it. As you sent me, Jesus says, into the world, I have sent them into the world. Operation World. So I challenge not just to Australia, to next door, to the festival, to your friends at work. Without Christ, they are lost. If we really have experienced that joy and love and the gospel in our lives, surely we want to share that with them. Jesus values you. If you are a believer in Jesus, he values you so much that he has given you a special task just for you, a mission, this mission, sending you out into the world to share his love and the glorious gospel. So let's respond to that and say, yes, I'm going to do that. Let's pray.